It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tortoise. Hello, it's Claudia here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. This year, there are big elections occurring on either side of the Atlantic. Over in America, it looks like 2020's battlegrounds will be refought. And next week, my colleague Giles Wittell will bring us the story of the infighting happening right now inside the Democrat Party. In the UK, it looks like the next election could shepherd in a change of party for the first time in 14 years. So this week, we're releasing a series in full. It's called Eight Years Hard Labour. And you might have heard part one on this feed already last year. But this week, we'll be dropping all six episodes. Because to really understand the party that might form the UK's next government, it's important to interrogate the journey it's been on. Eight years ago, Jeremy Corbyn was elected as Labour's leader. He wasn't exactly a household name. For three decades, he'd sat on the Labour backbenches. But suddenly, in 2015, his world, and our world, was transformed. He had a shot at power, and he was elected leader of the opposition in a landslide victory. Since that moment eight years ago, there have been five prime ministers two general elections and a referendum. The country has changed a lot. And the Labour Party has too. For almost eight years, it has been defined by upheaval. But what we don't know, what nobody's really been able to answer properly so far, is what actually happened, what went on inside the Labour Party. So to tell that story, the story of Labour's two revolutions... I'm handing over to journalist, author and broadcaster David Aronovich, who has worked with Tortoise's political editor Kat Nealon and producer Valerio Esposito in the first of six parts. Over the next three days, we'll be bringing you the full six-part series. This is an exit poll, very carefully calculated, not necessarily on the nail. But here it is, 10 o'clock, and we are saying the Conservatives are the largest party. The Conservatives on 316, that's up nine. It's the evening of May 7th, 2015. Election day. In Labour HQ, the bomb has just dropped. I remember when the exit poll came out, and I distinctly 
called turning round and seeing some of my colleagues who had their sort of hands over their mouths as if they'd sort of witnessed a car crash. Ed Miliband and his team had thought, had hoped, they had a good chance of getting Labour back into power after five years in opposition. Labour's communication director was Tom Baldwin. And the air just went out of the room. And I remember spending quite a lot that night going for long walks around St James's Park, discussing what had gone wrong, where this would go now. Baldwin and the traumatised team were in London. Ed Miliband was in his constituency in Doncaster. He was due to get a helicopter back to London that night and thought, actually, that looked too triumphant, so he drove back and we were all waiting for him when he came into the room and there were people in tears. And he said he decided to resign. Other leaders, like Edward Heath, Harold Wilson and Neil Kinnock, had lost an election and continued on to fight another, or remained in office to oversee a succession, as had the losing Conservative leader in 2005, Michael Howard. Tom Baldwin thought his boss should do the same. And so I tried my best to say, look, if you could stay on for three or four months, it will stabilise the party, probably stop the party doing something stupid. But I think he'd had enough. Britain needs a Labour Party that can rebuild after this defeat so we can have a government that stands up for working people again. And now it's time for someone else to take forward the leadership of this party. So I'm tendering my resignation. I want to do so straight away because the party... I was on a live BBC election programme when Miliband made that speech. I remember saying that I thought he was wrong, immoral even, from Labour's point of view, to just flounce off the field. But I had no idea, none at all, and nor did anyone else, what his abrupt departure would lead to. The election of the most unlikely and radical leader in post-war history. The takeover of the Labour Party by what had been thought of as its fringe. The hobbling of the referendum fight against Brexit. Titanic internal battles of increasing bitterness. Two more Labour election defeats, one closer than expected, and one worse than any Labour nightmare could have envisaged to be followed by the election of a new leader who, as the pandemic gripped the country, set about erasing all traces of the old one. It's a story of a double revolution inside just eight years that helped shape Britain as it is today and may well shape it tomorrow. I'm David Aronovich from Tortoise. This is Eight Years Hard Labour. Episode 1. Jez We Can. While Ed Miliband absorbed the bad news in Doncaster, 170 miles away and almost unnoticed, the London constituency of Hoban and St Pancras acquired a new Member of Parliament. We need more than ever tonight, in light of the results, to protect our public services and our NHS. And we need to ensure that HS2 does not come into Euston in our constituency. No HS2 to Euston? Let's see how that goes. But in fact, the new MP's more immediate problem, as it was for all his colleagues, was what kind of opposition Labour was going to be, and to that end, who would lead that opposition. And here, the rules had changed. Ed Miliband had bequeathed to his party a new system. Gone was the old electoral college of a third MPs, a third union members, and a third party members. In came one party member, one vote... And, for three quid, 
even non-party members could cast a ballot. The idea, explains Tom Baldwin... It would reduce the block vote of the unions and the influence of the union members and liberate the party to go out and sign up lots of new centrist members who aren't like the sort of hairy left-wingers that uh, so many people in the media and beyond despise. What could go wrong? especially since MPs were the gatekeepers of who could qualify to get on the ballot of the membership. And early on, there were three front-runners, Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham and Liz Kendall. A still-smarting membership did not seem properly enthused. Stephen Bush was a young Labour watcher working for the New Statesman magazine. Most uh, of the party rank and file had not seen the 2015 defeat coming. Yeah, I would say there was very little enthusiasm for for any of these candidates and generally a sense of fatalism. The leading candidates belonged to the centre and centre-left. Over on the left-left, they were discussing whether they would put up a candidate at all. Though he was not an MP, the veteran left-winger and seasoned campaigner John Landsman was a big part of these discussions. I felt extremely strongly that uh, we needed to have a candidate. We weren't necessarily looking for the kind of candidate we, you know, we got. You know, we would have settled for a softer left candidate um, had there been one. I mean, I think some might have thought of John McDonnell as a candidate. And, you know, having known John since GLC days when he was deputy leader you know, and effectively ran the campaign against our abolition. You know, my experience of him back then was of great competence, you know, who could make decisions, who could delegate, and had quite a lot of leadership skills. However, I didn't think then that he would have a chance in hell of getting on the ballot paper. MacDonnell had made too many enemies in the past. He'd offended too many of his colleagues. So people started to look at his fellow left-winger, the long-standing MP for Islington North, might he get on the ballot? Talking to people who were running the campaigns of the three mainstream candidates, none of them really thought Corbyn had a chance of getting onto the final ballot. Cat Nealon, Tortoise's political editor, has spent months speaking to Labour insiders, securing access to key figures close to the last three party leaders and other main players who've controlled the party machinery in the last decade. His support was slowly creeping up, not with any real sense that he would win, but to show that Labour was this broad church we always hear about. MPs say it was to widen the debate. It's probably a slightly noble way of looking at it. Remember, this was just after Ed Miliband had lost, in part because of the Red Ed attack lines. So Corbyn was very far left of Miliband, but he wasn't taken that seriously within the PLP. He struggled to get just enough nominations to get him through the first round. Ultimately, scrape through that to the next stage when members would vote. But as one person who was closely involved in Yvette Cooper's campaign told me, MPs kind of failed to realise just how disaffected a lot of their newer members were with the people they blamed for the Iraq war and for the financial crush. In fact, it was described to me as a boiling rage, and that's how it translated through voting for Corbyn. Many mainstream MPs, like Exeter's Ben Bradshaw, didn't hate Corbyn. I was a minister in the Labour government and I did foreign affairs for a while and Middle East was my portfolio. And I was aware of Jeremy because, of course, he had always been very engaged on um, Palestine, Israel, uh, and also actually on some, um, I thought, some rather admirable causes that no other 
MPs seem to be interested in, like the fate of the West Saharans uh, and various other peoples who'd been hard done by around the world. If you've ever been on a walking holiday or like a like real ale thing or you've like gone to a lower league football team, you've met someone a lot like Jeremy Corbyn, you know, who has like some rather odd interests and collects something and is like very polite and well-mannered in that very English way. But was Corbyn up to the job of being the standard bearer for the left? There's even a question mark over to what extent he really wanted to be leader, let alone prime minister. There was always this rumour that he was talked into it by John McDonnell and some of the others in the campaign group, the, the sort of left-wing group in the PLP, because others, including John McDonnell and Diane Abbott, had tried and failed. And so Jeremy Corbyn was really the only plausible candidate left for the left-wing group to, to coalesce behind. And that kind of translated into the sense that Corbyn didn't really want to be leader. He didn't really want to be prime minister. He'd never thrown his hat into the ring. He didn't particularly like giving interviews, and that was quite clear. Um, it kind of all came together to give this sense that he was there kind of under sufferance. And because he was so used to being on the sidelines, out of the spotlight, making his jam and going to protest, he wasn't really prepared for the pressures that being leader would bring. You know, and Jeremy was very active, particularly on kind of foreign policy issues. And I suppose I saw his role as more being about, you know, giving moral support from the backbenches in Parliament than really achieving significant, any, any significant changes. So maybe not first choice, but at least he might get a chance to make the left's arguments to the membership. When he was first proposed, I was fairly sceptical. And the thing that persuaded me was, you know, the figure from the, from the trade union movement who said, well, you know, he's got no enemies, which makes him a better candidate for... And it's, tr it's true, he didn't have any enemies. He was thought of very broadly within the PLP as being a kind of decent human being who, um, you know, was very moral. Well, of course, I hadn't bargained at that stage with the possibility that we would get even close to winning. John Lansman's calculation was bang on. People in the centre thought the process required someone on the left to be present and to be duly defeated. So some were happy to contemplate lending a nomination. But it was thought important to give legitimacy to the contest, to have a left-winger there, and it was Jeremy Corbyn's turn and nobody, including Jeremy Corbyn and his closest friends and family, expected him to win. The journalist Stephen Bush was following the battle for nominations. I hit the phone, rang you know, almost everyone I knew in the Parliamentary Labour Party, and it became obvious to me that there were 35 nominations at the time, the threshold to get him on the ballot. So I, you know, bashed out this piece being, you know, Jeremy Corbyn can make the ballot, you know, he, you know there, there's a path and here's why, included some anonymous quotes. And I remember very vividly just watching this this piece of, you know, essentially yeah, what we call in the States inside baseball, shoot right to the top of our most read. Two minutes before the deadline for nominations, Jeremy Corbyn, with 36, made it onto the ballot. The token left-winger, most people thought. Not former Minister Ben Bradshaw, though. Well, I'm afraid to say I had that fear the moment he got on the ballot. And I remember feeling rather angry with colleagues of mine who should have known better, who gave him a vote to put him on the ballot, 
so that somebody from the left was represented, because I was very worried uh, that uh, what would happen did happen in that the Labour membership, which had already shifted significantly under Ed Bidlerband and he changed the electoral system much for the worst. We'd had five years of a leader who refused to defend the record of the Labour government. If anything, he did it down. And I was worried. I never thought we'd win the 2015 election. I didn't think we stood a chance that the response of Labour Party members would be this emotional spasm that indeed we got of, oh, it wasn't because uh, we were too left-wing, it's because the voters were wrong. So actually we want someone who's even more left-wing. It was a kind of collective psychological denial about the reasons why we had lost. So I remember feeling rather full of gloom as soon as Corbyn got on the ballot. This was unusual prescience. Even Corbyn supporters didn't think he had a chance. When his campaign began, the early signs were mildly encouraging, but even so, it was expected to be a failure, if mildly heroic. Paul Mason was a rare supporter of the left in the mainstream British media. So rare that he was consulted by figures such as the General Secretary of the mighty Unite Trade Union, Len McCluskey. Even at the time when Jeremy Corbyn was beginning to make an impression in the Labour leadership race in 2015, I can remember sitting in a room with Lemma Kluski saying, what does the left want from Andy Burnham? Welcome to the Newsnight Labour Leadership Debate. It's the moment the race to replace Ed Miliband left the Westminster Village. These are the four people shortlisted by the Labour Party to be its next Prime Minister, presented to the public for the first time today. Is the budget surplus the most important economic objective? Jeremy Corbyn, straight to you, shaking no, your head vigorously. No, it is not the most important thing. The most important thing is to ensure our community has a health service, has an education service, and people are decently housed, and young people have abilities to go into work and develop themselves. Why is it in Britain today, the 100 richest people equal the total wealth of 30% of the population? That is fundamentally wrong. In mid-June, the BBC's Newsnight hosted a hustings in the Midlands. Labour activist, later to be elected north of Tyne Mayor Jamie Driscoll, was watching. It wasn't Andy Burnham who caught his eye. And I remember watching that first hustings, I think it was in Nuneaton, and he started saying, he's, it's fair to say he's never been a great orator, but he's just a very straightforward communicator, and him saying things like, well, I think we've got to just deal with poverty, I think we should be building council houses. And it got a huge level of support, and I thought, oh, something's happening here. And I thought, they're going to underestimate this guy, he's going to end up with something like 30% of the vote. Um, and I'd underestimated it as well. <laughs> John Landsman was helping direct the Corbyn campaign and he was beginning to see the same thing, starting at the conference of another major union. I mean, at the very first public meeting, which happened to be the GMB conference, which took place in Dublin, immediately after, you know, he was nominated. You know, it was breathtaking, you know, how, uh, you know, his kind of just straight response rather than the evasive responses from every other uh, candidate at that point. You know, it got a, a really quite astonishing response. Hardened political journalists felt they'd seen such public demonstrations of support of the left before, and they usually presaged defeat. Stephen Bush was too young to be hardened. And it just started to feel 
from very early on, no, no, look, there's 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 real energy behind this candidate. There's real excitement from people you wouldn't expect to be excited. There's a broader upswell behind this candidate than the one we would expect. Sam Tarry was a Labour Party member and union employee. I was working for a uh, trade union, uh, TSSA, and um, our executive you know, uh, was looking at who we were going to support. And it became quite obvious quite quickly um, that something was bubbling away under the surface. You know, there are people turning up to uh, events in larger and larger numbers. This is quite in the early days. There are young people who have not been involved in certainly Labour Party politics at all turning up to these events and everyone seemed to be kind of growing uh, in size and there started to be a bit of a buzz around it. The hustings all became Corbyn rallies, right? Like He was the only person who was exciting to the activist. The three main candidates, all with experience of government, campaigned as though it was business as usual. Sensible policies, carefully maintained positions. Here's Kat Nealon. Among the people deciding who they were going to back for a future leader was this new cohort of MPs who'd literally just been in the House of Commons for a few weeks. We found an article by Labourlist from this time, June 2015, in which it describes Keir Starmer as the most prominent of newly elected Labour MPs, primarily because he was, of course, a director of public prosecutions before joining the Commons. And it says he had nominated Andy Burnham to be the next leader. Now, at this point, Andy Burnham was the front runner. He had 65 MPs backing him. Uh, It looked almost odds on that he would be the next Labour leader, even though Yvette Cooper and Liz Kendall also had quite a few numbers backing them. Jeremy Corbyn was still far below the threshold. With Andy Burnham so far ahead of all of the other MPs that were running for leader, it looked as though Keir Starmer had made a safe bet, perhaps even bought himself a place in a future government. But of course, the wheels quickly came off. Liam Byrne had been Gordon Brown's Chief Secretary to the Treasury and was now in charge of Yvette Cooper's campaign. Looking back, he sees what happened. So I think what a lot of the Labour leadership candidates had underestimated was the boiling rage that had built up amongst Labour members about the pain and agony of austerity. But I think what everybody had missed was the fact that that anger and agony had become organised. So you had initiatives and grassroots organisations that had grown out of the Stop the War Coalition, uh, that had morphed into the People's Assembly Against Austerity, which had been pretty well structured by a lot of good people in the trade union movement. And so not only was there um, you know, a boiling rage, there was a level of organisation too. And what Jeremy was able to do was to bring those two things together um, in, a, you know, in a really powerful surge tide of support for his leadership candidature. Only one campaign, it seems, was efficiently signing up new young members and £3 voters online. It tapped into a zeitgeist, this idea that actually people wanted someone that wasn't just an ordinary kind of grey politician, that, you know, that there was someone that had this authenticity. It felt like they were, that we were living in a moment of a political eruption. 
Up in the northeast, Jamie Driscoll had helped publicise a rally for the man from Islington North. It was an event organised in Newcastle at the Time Theatre and Opera House, and this is a big venue, I think 1,500 seats, and it was massively oversubscribed, um, and I haven't been able to get a seat in there. And there was an overflow rally in the square outside where there was about six or 700 people standing in the rain. We directed a temporary stage. That was the first time I actually got involved in the Corbyn campaign. Inside the hall, Jeremy Corbyn was received with rapture and sent off with a roar of support. Thank you so much. Commentators struggle with what seemed to be going on. I certainly did. I should have listened to Paul Mason. For probably, you know, 2016, 2017, I, I was a person in the media who was called on to explain. Because I have to tell you that in the mainstream media, Newsnight and the BBC where I, and Channel 4 News, where I come from, there was extreme scepticism about Corbyn. Um, there was, I would almost describe it as incomprehension. How can this be happening? And... One almost had to sit down with one's former colleagues and say, all right, I'll explain how it can happen because Labour is not simply a party of Blairite capitalist management. It happens to represent several million organised workers who are pissed off. And, and now they're joined by several million young people who are equally seemingly pissed off with capitalism. Famously, though, meetings aren't votes. At the 1983 general election, Michael Foote, then leader of the Labour Party, campaigning on a left-wing manifesto, drew in huge crowds around the country and went down to a landslide defeat. This time, it was different. The crowds were there, and so was the machine. And after a short time, that operation was beginning to get back some surprising information. We you know, began organising phone banking, which took off in the most dramatic way. Um, we quite rapidly got quite a lot of data from those canvas returns. Um, and it was clear that it was going to be the left's best showing since 1981, uh, I think, quite quickly. But, you know, that's a long way from being, a, you know, a winning campaign. And the first indications we had that really convinced us, you know, made it uh, appear to us. And initially it was to me, you know, I was director of operations. So I, you know, was, was, you know, in charge of all of the data gathering, the kind of technical stuff behind it. I, with my kind of most senior colleague, did an analysis of, of that and we were shocked by the results. We, we weren't, you know, we thought, you know, that maybe there had been something wrong with the analysis, you know, spreadsheets are wonderful things, but errors are more difficult to spot uh, in the structure. And then there were polls, initially secret, but Stephen Bush was digging. When I started to hear, when I was calling round local members, and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd ask them yeah, how it was going, people, you know, like a bit of this, bit of this, a lot of people backing Corbyn. And then someone mentioned to me that they had been surveyed by YouGov. And so I knew that there was a private poll out there, and so I went about trying to find ways to get sight of it. And I think one of the reasons why I felt so confident in saying he was going to win was that it was very clear right from the beginning to me that there was energy around him. 
The left-wing MP Jeremy Corbyn has taken a strong lead in the Labour leadership race. A YouGov poll out this morning puts him well ahead of the other candidates. Paul Brand is at Westminster for us. Uh, so what does this mean for the Labour Party, Paul? Well, this is causing a little bit of fear and a lot of infighting. Most Labour MPs think Jeremy Corbyn would be a disaster for them as leader. Even some of those who nominated him are now kicking themselves, particularly in the light of this new poll. It has Jeremy Corbyn on 43%. That is almost double the previous frontrunner, Andy Burnham, on 26%. At first, the other campaigns refused to believe it. Then a Times poll was published confirming what Stephen Bush had been saying, and in that strange way political people have of doubting the evidence of their own eyes until it's confirmed in a newspaper, the Corbyn campaign now understood what was about to happen. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It was only really when the the first Times poll came out, which was only about four days later, that, you know, it it really chimed pretty, very precisely with the findings that we were getting. Do you remember the moment when you thought, we're going to win this? I do remember that. And, you know, I was concerned about our ability to to deliver, you know, just to deliver the, you know, we had a tremendous operation in the campaign, but um, running an opposition, never mind a government, was a different matter. Locate yourself for me at the moment of revelation. We were in the offices. By then, I think we had more than one floor in the offices of the Transport and Salary Staff Association. And my colleague and I immediately went and talked to Simon. Simon Fletcher was Chief of Staff and Leaders Director of Campaigns. About, you know, who we hadn't shared the detail of the analysis because we, you know, we hadn't been, we hadn't regarded sufficiently credible. 
And, you know, at that point, fully briefed John McDonnell. Uh, so, you know, there was that two or three day gap. And, you know, it meant, you know, my immediate thought was, you know, we've got to prepare for the possibility of winning. And that requires a great deal of thought. The Midlands MP Tom Watson, though not a Corbyn supporter, was clearly heading for victory in the separate deputy leadership campaign. And so John had a lot of discussions with Tom Watson about it. And just how, you know, if you win, for example, just how do you manage the operation of appointing people to a shadow cabinet and, and junior places? In the less than kind way that Labour run these things, the candidates for leader were told the results before they entered the room. And if there was any lingering doubt about who had won, the faces of Jeremy Corbyn's opponents said it all. Jeremy Corbyn, 251 <laughs> In the end, there was no room for doubt. Nearly 60% of the vote, nothing other than a landslide, a thumping win by the man who only just scraped onto the ballot. On the 12th of September 2015, the impossible was confirmed. A man who had never been a minister or a shadow minister, despite being in Parliament for 32 years, was announced as leader of Her Majesty's principal party of opposition. His bemused and defeated opponents tried to smile, gamely congratulated him, and then went off to calculate how long this strange interregnum would last. But their new leader had won while enjoying the support and confidence of a bare handful of his colleagues in the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party. Not exactly the most secure base from which to launch a bid to eventually become Prime Minister. Now Corbyn and his advisers had to work out what to do next, because the top man had never really run anything before. So I think there was broad agreement that the Shadow Cabinet would be an inclusive Shadow Cabinet of broad section of the PLP. You know, we recognised that a great deal of the PLP were going to be antagonistic. I don't think we really anticipated just how antagonistic and how quickly they became antagonistic. Uh, but there was a presumption that, uh, you know, we would try and be as inclusive as possible. Now there were some red lines, and, and, you know, this was based on discussions with Jeremy. One major Corbyn supporter, however, had run things before. Bitter internal election campaigns, strikes, negotiations with intransigent employers, and a union with 1.2 million members. And even if the vast majority of his members hadn't voted for him or his political outlook, Unite General Secretary Len McCluskey still took it upon himself to try and order the world. Jeremy Corbyn's election, winning with a mandate which dwarfed anything previously given to any other leader of a political uh, party in Britain, will, I believe, be seen as a major turning point in British politics. There was a presumption that John McDonnell would take the role of, of Shadow Chancellor. We had a, uh, a meeting quite late in the day at which Steve Turner came as a representative of Unite. And Steve Turner came to deliver a message from Len McCluskey, quite clearly, that it should not be John McDonnell who was Shadow Chancellor. The message from Len McCluskey was essentially it should not be John McDonnell, it should be someone else. 
And there was very swift reaction against that, not least because we didn't want to be told what to do by Unite, by Len McCluskey. And, you know, that was a real, uh, I think should have been to everyone, a real warning. John Landsman knew that Corbyn's position and that of the Labour left would be precarious without a grassroots movement out there to support it and went off to start up an organisation to do just that, which he called Momentum. Meanwhile, back in Westminster, Labour MPs debated with themselves as to what they should do and decided that for the most part in the short term, there was nothing they could do. I remember thinking that we had to live with this result for the time being, because we are a democratic party, uh, and he had won uh, pretty uh, comprehensively. I think my overwhelming feeling was that the Labour Party is a deep, wide and old institution um, that is resilient and strong. And what we have a duty to do, clause one of the Labour Party, is that you know, our mission and purpose is to, is, is to create a movement in the country that forms a government. And so, uh, you know, in a way you had to respect the democracy and you had to respect the results. And so the leader having been elected, you know, you had to kind of try and find a way to make it work. But at first, it was not clear quite how that could be done. Some old hands, like Yvette Cooper, refused offers to serve under Corbyn and retire to the back benches. Andy Burnham agreed to become Shadow Home Secretary. Yet other MPs, such as the newly elected member for Swansea East, Carolyn Harris, while not being Corbynites, felt that duty, a demanding mistress sometimes, called. Well, I think a lot of us took jobs under Corbyn's team because somebody had to do it. You do it for the party, don't you? Not for the person. So um, I became Andy's PPS. Then I ended up as, as, as a shadow minister in the Home Office team. And then I became a shadow minister with the Women and Equalities team. From early on, Harris was a friend and early admirer of another new MP, a rare knight on Labour's benches, the former Director of Public Prosecution, Sir Keir Starmer, who accepted the role of Shadow Immigration Minister. Um, and as so many people were not serving, that I just, I imagine Keir was the same as me, felt that we had to make a contribution and in order to make us a credible opposition, because that's what we were, whether we were a good opposition or not, is is not by no it, now I would say we weren't a particularly good opposition, but we had to be an opposition. It couldn't last though, could it? Some commentators speculated about how long it would be before Jeremy Corbyn got fed up with the pressures and compromises of office and took himself off. Except that the man himself appeared to be actually enjoying it. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I want to thank all those that took part in an enormous democratic exercise in this country, which in concluded with me being elected as leader of the Labour Party and leader of the opposition. I think we can be very proud of the numbers of people who engaged and took part in all those debates. I've taken part in many events around the country and had conversations with many people about what they thought about this place, our parliament, our democracy and our conduct within this place. And many told me that they thought Prime Minister's question time was too theatrical, that Parliament was out of touch and too theatrical, and they wanted things done differently, but above all, they wanted their voice heard in Parliament. 
So I thought my first Prime Minister's question time, I'd do it in a slightly different way. And I'm sure the Prime Minister is going to absolutely welcome this, as he welcomed this idea in 2005. But something seems to have happened to his memory during that period. Um, Jeremy Corbyn had begun 2015 as a veteran backbencher who preferred his conscience and Latin American politics to the vicissitudes of power. He ended the year as the leader of the party of Attlee, Wilson and Blair. And he was having fun. Not for long, though. Now I want to speak directly to the British people to explain why. We are approaching one of the biggest decisions this country will face in our lifetimes whether to remain in a reformed European Union or to leave. It couldn't last. Eight Years Hard Labour was written and reported by me, David Aronovich. Additional reporting was by Kat Nealon. It was produced by Valerio Esposito. Sound design and original music by Tom Kinsella. Artwork by John Hill. The editor was Jasper Corbett. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation and as King Charles returns to work... What do we think of it? And how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.